Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne to him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered from multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are about 20 different committees in the United States House of Representatives. Of these committees, there's some that are more powerful than others. And there's one in particular that most Congress people, most representatives, would like to serve on because it's, the mo it's commonly known as one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, committee. And the committee that is that does not have an exciting name like the Intelligence Committee. Uh, that's one that I would like to be on, you know. Um, or the, uh, the Military Committee or whatever. It is the Ways and Means Committee. And the reason why the Ways and Means Committee is so powerful is that every other committee gets to talk about what they would like to do, what they would like to see happen, but it's really only the Ways and Means Committee that's able to make it happen. Because the Ways and Means Committee holds the purse strings. They make the budget for the federal government. It's a very powerful responsibility 
to sit on the Ways and Means Committee. It is how you accomplish what you want to do. And that is what we see in this passage, that the way you accomplish something is just as important as the thing in which you wish to accomplish. Eugene Peterson is famous for using this illustration, and he says it like this. He says, following Jesus necessarily means getting his ways and means into our everyday lives. Because friends, you don't get to have Jesus, the person and the truth of who Jesus is, without the way of Jesus coming with that. Many churches have had good visions and bad ways and means. They desire to reach people for Christ, but yet they choose ways that do not glorify Christ, that are not the way of Jesus. For example, many of you have heard the Rise and Fall of Marcel podcast, and you're familiar with the story of Marcel Church in Seattle and Mark Driscoll, the pastor who was there. It's the story of a church that skyrocketed, became one of the largest churches in the country, and they reached a ton of people. They had like 13, 14 different locations across the western United States. They just grew and grew, and a lot of people came to meet, meet Jesus in that church, but then the church, more quickly than it grew, it nosedived, and it died epically. And the reason why is because Mark... Driscoll, the man who led that church, had a huge vision to reach Seattle, a good vision to reach Seattle and to reach the world with the good news of Jesus. The, the things that he said were often correct. He preached the same gospel that I am here to preach this morning, but yet his ways and means of doing it were not the same as the ways of Jesus. There's this quote that he gives in the, in the podcast where he says this. There's a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus, and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are your two options. As you see, he adopted an any means necessary approach to reaching people for Christ. But friends, Jesus does not drive a bus that runs over people. That is not the way of Christ. It is not any means necessary. You see, Mark had this good vision. He wanted to build a church and see a lot of people be saved, but he had the wrong ways and means. And the question is posed over and over again in the podcast, well, how did this happen? Why did it happen? Just You hear story after story after story of people being abused, of people being misused and mistreated, of him being a, a megalomaniac, a, a narcissist, however you might want to describe it. But how did it happen? Why did it, why did it go on for so long out of all places that should be safe for someone to come into and to not experience that, the church should be the safe place? And the answer to that that they gave over and over in the podcast is the ends felt like they justified the means. A lot of people were coming to know Jesus. Personally, a lot of my favorite bands, Christian bands, came out of that church. 
They were having this amazing renaissance of musical artistry. They were experiencing amazing things. And so it felt like the ends justified the means. Sure, Mark is a jerk. Sure, he has some different ways of approaching leadership. But isn't that worth it? And I think when we look at this passage today, we see something very similar happening. Because friends, when you excuse hurting people for the vision of God, there's a name for that. And it's spiritual abuse. Now it's not to say that there's not hurt in the church. There's, we're people. <laughs> it's, it's messy, okay? There's always going to be hurt Because when you interact with another sinful human being, there's going to be hurt. So not everything that is hurtful is abusive, but sometimes there is a line that you go beyond where the hurt becomes intentional, it becomes inappropriate, and it does not line up with the way of Jesus. Too many people have been subjected to manipulative and exploited, exploitative religious leaders who try to control their every thought and action in Jesus' name. Too many people. And friends, I think that the message that the Lord wants us to hear from this passage is that our God cares just as much about the ways and means as he does the ends, if not a little more so. In today's passage, we see the first recorded case of what we'll call spiritual abuse. And what you'll see in this passage is that God continually promised Abram and Sarai that they would have children and that he would build them into a great nation. But instead of waiting for God to fulfill his promise, they formed a personal ways and means committee and decided to go about accomplishing the vision through their own methods. And so there's two points in this passage that I want to draw your attention to as we go through it. And the first is God cares about the ways and means. And the second is God cares for the mistreated. God cares about the ways and means And number two, God cares for the mistreated. Let's jump in. God cares about the ways and means. Verse one, chapter 16, as we continue our series on the book of Genesis, working our way through it, mostly verse by verse. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Let's just stop here for a second. This is such an interesting beginning to this uh, verse, this chapter, because If you were here last week, you might remember that just last week, in chapter 15, God walked Abram out into the wilderness, and he said, Abram, look up. You see all the stars? You're going to have children that outnumber the stars. God just promised Abram that he would have children. And not only that, but he sealed that promise with a covenant where he split the animals in two, and he said, I will live up to this promise, or... I will be split into two. God just did that. That just happened, okay? Like, I know that there's been a week between me preaching it, but when you're reading the story, it's the next verse, 
all right? The next verse, Abram's wife had borne him no children. Well, duh, like we're, we're talking about that, but it's repeating it once again. Sarah, like us, is quick to forget God's promises. And in her civilization, her society, barrenness was a tragedy. For women in that society, to have children is to be a success. And to not have children is to be a failure. And so Sarai is saying, I am still a failure. I haven't accomplished anything. And this is what the second half of verse 1 says. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now, the options for women in this society were not plenteous. In many ways, our society is advanced, but in this society, they were not plenteous. You were either, you, you had to find someone's household to join, to make it as a woman. So you were either under your father's household, or you joined someone's household as a wife, as a concubine, or as a servant. And so here we have Hagar joining the household of Abram as a servant. In verse 2, and Sarai said to Abram, behold now, look, look here, Abram, <laughs> the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. <laughs> so interesting. God just promised them that they would have kids. You see, Sarai, she believes in God. She just doesn't trust him. There's a line there. Just because you believe in God does not mean that you trust him. The word for belief and faith is pretty much the same word in Old Testament and New Testament. But in English, they aren't. And you need to see that trust is necessary for a true belief in God. You see, the Lord has prevented me from having children, is what Sarai says. So she schemes. She says, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. She wants a child so bad that she's willing to volunteer one of her servants to be a surrogate mother on her behalf. Supposedly with the idea that the servant would have the child and then give it back to Sarai. Friends, again, it's not what she wanted that was the problem. She wanted children. This was promised by God. This was the vision that the Lord had given her, to have children. It's how to get the children. That's the problem. Sarah wanted the exact same thing that God wanted. Friends, sometimes we can have the best of intentions and the best of desires. We can want something that the Lord wants so badly but it will require more patience than what many of us are willing to give it. And the Lord had promised her a good thing, but she wanted to take a shortcut to get the thing in which he promised. God cares about the means just as much as the ends. So Sarai's desires for a godly thing drove her to abusive means, drove her to use her servant. Who here can relate with Sarai? Hopefully, no one has given away anybody to their, their spouse. Uh, hopefully, that hasn't happened here. But I think most of us can say that we've wanted something so badly that we were willing to do almost anything to get that thing that we de desired. Who here has ever done something that they regret 
that was done in completely good intentions. Me too. Have you ever treated another human being as less than human, subhuman, to get what you want, to accomplish your goals? And I think that it's helpful for us to think about the fact that the seeds for abuse live in all of our hearts. Because sometimes our desires are so strong that we're willing to, to sacrifice other people's rights and other people's dignity to get what we so desire, what we so want. Most of us are familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells the story of a man who was walking along the road and fell among robbers. And the robbers stripped him and beat him and left him half dead by the side of the road. Then some respectable people came along, a, a Levite and a priest. They came along. They saw the man on the side of the road, but they're respectable, important people. They're heading somewhere, and they decide to walk by the man who's laying on the road. And it wasn't until the, the Samaritan, the outcast of the society, stops and sees the man on his way, and he stops and takes care of the man who fell into the robbers. What I want to draw your attention to is, why didn't the religious leader stop? Well, it doesn't say, but one can assume that they're going somewhere important, that they're going somewhere for a meeting that's of importance. And what they don't realize is that the way you get somewhere is just as important as where you're going. The way you get somewhere is just as important as where you are going. Why does the Samaritan stop? Well, you might read this and say, well, of course he stopped. He didn't have anything to do. He wasn't as important as those people. But we know that whatever we think about this passage, it's not about how important the person is or how important the thing is that they have to do but it's that the way that we go about it is as important as what we're trying to accomplish. We don't know why these people were in such a hurry to, and they walked past them. We don't know the purpose of their journey. But I think that we can resonate. Because some of us can be so busy accomplishing our important ends that we completely neglect what's going on around us. I resonate with this every day. I'm sitting, trying to work. My kids come in after school. Dad, I did this. Dad, I did that. And I'm just like, leave me alone. I'm in the middle of a thought. Okay, you guys need to go watch some TV or something. But there's probably nothing more important than me to take a moment and listen and care. Those examples go much farther and longer. Sometimes it's less about where you're going than it is how you get there. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, verse 3. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, there are a few fun callbacks here. Uh, this, I love it when the Old Testament does this. We've seen this over and over again in the, in the book of Genesis, that we've seen uh, different 
ways that the book has echoed itself as we've gotten into new parts of it. And so just a few fun things here. In the garden, Adam listened to the voice of his wife as they fell into sin. Just as it says here at the end of verse 2, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai as they fell into sin. And in the garden, Eve takes the fruit and gives it to Adam, just as Sarai takes Hagar and gives her to her husband. And so it's another fall story that we have here, that we have repeating over and over and over again throughout Genesis. Also, interestingly enough, it was just a few chapters ago when faithless Abram gave Sarai, his wife, to the Egyptian pharaoh, and now we have faithless Sarai giving his, her husband Abram to the Egyptian Hagar. You have the symmetry that occurs throughout the scriptures. How did Hagar feel about this arrangement to be given to Abram to carry Sarai's child? We don't know. It doesn't say. They're treating Hagar like she's a non-playable character in the game of life. It doesn't matter to them how Hagar feels about this. She is a soulless baby machine to them. You take Hagar and have my child via this woman. This pops up a few times. Uh, I just want to take a a little aside here um, in case you missed it last time we were here. But polygamy this idea that you can be married to more than one person, is nowhere endorsed in the Bible. Just because the Bible acknowledges something as true, that it happened, doesn't mean that the Bible's endorsing that thing. Uh, God's created an intention for marriage has always been for one man and one woman to be married for life. Now, polygamy, at the same time, was common in that day, and it was a cultural norm. And so it was not something that anybody would blink an eye at for Abram to have two wives. That was a very culturally normal thing, but it doesn't mean it was okay. And I think just as an aside, it's just helpful for us to think about the fact that sometimes things are okay in society and they're not okay to God. And I think we can look throughout the history of the the world and see many different occasions where something was accepted in society, but it was not accepted to God, and it makes me ponder what in our society would be seen as okay and acceptable to our society, but not to God. I think that we won't have a full list of what those things are until we're in retrospection, but I can think about several different things. I can brainstorm with you a little bit, how we use our money, how we use our sex, how we use our power. Eh, There's probably a lot of things that we can put on this list that are socially okay and acceptable, but not okay to the Lord. Let's continue. Verse four, and he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Now, Hagar sometimes is written uh, observed here as like the villain. She, lo- she looked with content. I think that Hagar here is a woman who's been treated like she is not a person, and she feels victorious over Sarai. Like, look, I did it. I, you are a failure because <laughs> you don't have children. I am a success because I do have children. The Lord has blessed me. And so she looks down on her mistress. This word for content means to be made less of in the eyes of Hagar. So Sarai is made less of in the eyes of 
Hagar. And Sarai does not like that very much. She says, may the wrong done to me be on you. She's talking to Abram. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. It turns out that Sarai got the exact thing that she wanted. And she didn't like it very much. May this be an opportunity right now for you to consider the things that you most desire in your heart. And to recognize that it's like sand in your hand. That the things that you most desire, when you get them, may not satisfy. I think we've all experienced that in the past at some point. We've, we've recognized this. That our desires never actually turn out the way that we think that they will, making us happy forever. But then we're so forgetful. And we just start doing it again. And so be reminded of this truth that it is never enough except for with the Lord. Verse 6, But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. This is classic abuser manipulation tactic. Sarai's playing the victim, and then she deals harshly. And this word for dealing harshly, the Hebrew here is the same word that would be used at, that a slave master would use for physical abuse toward a slave. And so it doesn't mean that it's necessarily physical abuse. They would say it like that, but it leans in that direction. And Hagar does the thing that's reasonable in this moment. She runs. She gets out of there. It's the right thing to do as she's experiencing this physical abuse. And what you see in this is that sin leads to more sin that leads to more sin. Sarai had a bad plan. She executed on that. She wasn't happy with it. And she's executing on more bad plans. What happens next in this narrative is both shocking and astonishing. It's a message that all of us need to hear. Because not only does God care about the ways and means, but the story takes this big turn, and it shows that God cares about the mistreated. I mean, this is a big turn. We've been following Abram and his family for quite a few chapters, and now all of a sudden, their little slave girl, woman, runs away after being mistreated, like a non-playable character, and what does the narrative do? The, the camera for the story follows her and says, what's she going to do? And she becomes the main character for just a moment as we get a peek into how God treats those who are mistreated. And what you need to see, point number two, is that God cares for the mistreated. Hagar is this vulnerable, abused, single mother and the Lord pursues after her. Verse 7, this is astounding. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now, this angel of the Lord, this is interesting. Because we've met angels, but we haven't met this person yet. This is the angel of the Lord, which is a different way of talking about an angel. This is a character that shows up 
throughout the scriptures, over and over again, as the angel. Not an angel, but the angel of the Lord. And every time that the angel of the Lord appears, that angel, which is just a word for messenger, is given the authority to speak on behalf of God himself. And so when you see the angel of the Lord speak here, what does he say? Uh, verse 10, I will surely multiply your offspring so that, they can be, can, so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. That is not something that an angel says. That is something that God says. And so when the angel of the Lord speaks, he speaks as Yahweh, the Lord. He appears a number of times throughout Scripture. I'll just bring up a couple of these. Genesis chapter 22, in just a few chapters, we're going to see him appear again. And what does he do when he appears then? But Abram is about to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar, and the angel of the Lord cries out and says, Stop! I see that you are faithful. I will give you an alternate sacrifice. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is in the wilderness and he hears a voice coming from a burning bush and who is it but the angel of the Lord saying, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. The word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord himself speaking to Moses. In Joshua chapter five, we see the commander of the Lord's army stop Joshua with a sword in his hand and speak on behalf of God. And say that he is the commander of the Lord's army. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And in that scene, Joshua gets down on his knees and he worships the angel of the Lord. Because the angel of the Lord is Yahweh himself in human form. And who do we know as the image of the invisible God? The firstborn among all creation. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 and 16 but Jesus Christ himself. And so almost every theologian that reads this and that speaks about the angel of the Lord recognizes that the angel of the Lord is none other than Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, pre-becoming human on earth as Jesus, but he is Jesus Christ showing up. That's one reason why we don't ever see the angel of the Lord appear in the New Testament, because Jesus has come. And he's alive and we've seen him. But in the Old Testament, we see him appear over and over and over again. And he always comes as a human representation of Yahweh himself. And so we have Jesus Christ coming to meet Hagar by a well. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now, if, if you're, let me give this aside. If you're experiencing abuse, do like Hagar, run away. Unless the Lord Jesus Christ himself comes and talks to you and tells you to go back, okay? This is not prescriptive. This is descriptive of what happened. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. There's a lot of patriarchs throughout the scripture. God makes this promise over and over again to many different men. I will multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered. He makes this promise to Abram, Isaac. He, he makes it over and over again. Hagar is the only matriarch in the entire scripture. The only woman that he promises this to. And he tells her the name of her son, Ishmael, which means God has heard. 
He gives her this prophecy that he will come, what he'll be like. And then in verse 13, she receives it, and she says this. So she called on the name of Yahweh, who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. She's the only person in the Old Testament who gives God a name and says, you are the God of seeing. She feels seen and known. This mistreated, single mother, vulnerable, seen and known by God. The first time the angel of the Lord appears, he appears to this woman. Abram may have seen her nude body, but he did not see her in the same way that God saw her. Friends, what does it mean to be seen by God? It means that she's valued, that she's known, that she's cared for. There's few feelings more special than truly being known, having someone have a genuine interest, not to use you, to mistreat you. Oftentimes we feel like people have an agenda, but to just know you, no agenda, to just be with you and to be near you, to see you all the way through for who you are, not for what you can provide them, but to see who you are as valued and as a person worthy of dignity. She's not a soulless baby machine. She's a person of value and dignity. And the powerful truth for those who have been mistreated is you do not deserve to be mistreated. You are an image bearer of God worthy of value and dignity. There's another woman that Jesus meets with by a well. The first woman that, that he meets with, the angel of the Lord meets with by a well, Hagar. The first woman that Jesus ever reveals himself to be, the first person that he ever reveals himself explicitly to be the Messiah to is another woman by a well in John chapter 4. And this woman is an outcast. She's going to the well in the middle of the day. She's a Samaritan. She has to go there because she wants to be alone. She doesn't want to be seen. She's been used and misused. She's had five different husbands, which is a shame in that day. And the one she's living with now is not her husband. She's a woman who probably feels invisible and tries to be invisible by going to the well when no one else is there. And Jesus goes explicitly to that well to meet with her that day. And the text says that he had to go through Samaria, which he didn't. He just had to. And as he meets with her, he tells her things that no one else could ever know. And he reveals to her who he is. It's the longest recorded private conversation between Jesus and anyone. And what does he tell her? But something that would have benefited Sarai all those years before, as she sought her own ways and means. But he says, everyone who drinks of the water that I give them, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. 
the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Friends, the same God who saw Hagar by the well and who saw this woman by the well, he sees you wherever you're at, whatever you're going through, and he treats you with dignity and respect and he cares for you. And he has the water that will not run dry. You don't have to take it into your own hands to get what you want because he is actually what you want. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the desires of your heart. And as you drink of that, you will find it doesn't feel like sand going between your fingers, but it feels like a well of eternal life springing forward. Satisfaction and joy and pleasure forevermore. Friends, he knows what you're going through and he cares. Go to him and drink of the water that will not run dry, the water that will never leave you thirsty again. Let's pray. Father, we lay down our selfish pursuits of the good life and we come again and bow at your feet and recognize that you have the water that will not run dry. And may we find our joy and satisfaction only in that, our complete hope only in you. God, we repent. Whoever here is pursuing their own ways and means, we repent and we want to follow the way of Christ and we want to treat people the way that you treat them and we want to see how you care for us. And we pray for anyone here who feels invisible today because of the relationships that they're in or what they have experienced in their past and their family lives. God, we pray that they will feel your watchful eyes seeing them and caring for them. And God, as we prepare ourselves to receive this communion meal, would our hearts be glad in what you've done. May we receive this gift from you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.